Doesn't it? Just a little bit. But I don't know. I like fall. Okay, well, Mike, would you like to begin us in word of prayer? Father, we again rejoice for the day that you have ordained that you set aside for us to be as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ gathered together. And the Lord, this morning, as we continue in our study of church history, we again hand it over to you, open heaven. And we see some glorious truths there that here we are, some. 2,000 years or more later, and uh, we see the, the foundation that was laid, and we are standing upon it as we, as Bible-believing Christians, as Reformed Bible-believing Christians, we cling to the Lord's foundation. And so we thank you for that this morning. Pray be with Brother Gene now as he teaches, and be with us as we are sitting here, that our ears will be open, that our eyes will be open, and our hearts will understand that which is said and preached this morning. Thank you now in Jesus' name. All right, just a few things this morning here as uh, we begin just by introduction. If you remember, the last time we finished the time period of the Apostolic Fathers, and so what we did is we moved into the section of persecution in the early church, and what we're doing is we're just kind of going through a brief survey of persecution in the first few centuries, so to the time of Constantine, and so that's what we're looking at right now. If you remember last time, we did look at Polycarp when we finished up the Apostolic Fathers. <laughs> Levi wasn't here for that, I don't think. He missed it, but I know he likes studying about Polycarp. But we saw his martyrdom. We talked about the martyrdom of Ignatius, and then last time we looked at Perpetua and her companions and the, the death that they suffered in the Colosseum and the uh, horrific uh, way of being torn apart by beasts and so forth. But that was very common for the Christians to be tortured and, and slaughtered at that time. So we're in that section of persecution. We'll continue to look at that. But I want to just mention a couple things first. Um, if you have any questions ever of where I'm getting this information from, I just want you to know it's from uh, his, history, church history books or lectures by people who are well-known, faithful, solid church historians. So I'm not just making any of this up. And if you have any question of where something came from, just come ask me. I'll tell you exactly where I got it from. Just a couple other things, too. Uh, if you have a source like this, I know Brother Harrison's got this, too, and I like it. It's called a Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. This is David, well, it looks like Burkott, but I guess it's pronounced a little differently. But uh, how do you pronounce that again, Harrison? Okay. If you, th it's, a, it's a helpful source. It takes... On over 700 topics, quotes from the early church fathers, so it's helpful. But just also a warning, and Harrison and I were talking about this, sometimes they can be abused because you have a quote there, but you don't know the context that it's set in. And uh, at the same time, uh, you know, David makes it clear in there he's not trying to be selective of just you know people who hold to his views, just picking from them. But you know, you might have something in there like free will, for example. And they'll quote Justin Martyr, they'll quote Irenaeus, and it's kind of like, wow, look what they were saying about free will. But it's not quoting others even before them who would have held maybe two more biblical views. So be careful with, with material like that. And then also another thing, I mean, it's, it's helpful, but just use it rightly. And then also another thing to mention is, uh, uh, what was I going to say again now? I can't remember what it was. I didn't write it down. Well, I think this is probably what it was. Um, 
when you get to the third century, I'd say late second century, early third century. Okay, now I remember what it was. You're going to have some different doctrinal beliefs that, that start to come in that aren't exactly biblically orthodox. But if you ever see something like a chart that says, like, this doctrine began at this time, and this doctrine began at this time, and this doctrine began at this time, that's not helpful at all. Because let's say that you have a chart that says the doctrine of purgatory started right here. Well, the doctrine of purgatory, let's say when it started to come about, wasn't the same as the doctrine of purgatory in the Middle Ages. I mean, it's, there's a development. But you start to see shreds of it early on, I would say at the beginning of the third century. So let's say we looked at the account of Perpetua last time, and I didn't read through the whole account of her martyrdom because it's a little bit lengthy to do. But there is a section in there about her younger brother who had died, and she says that she sees him, and she prays for him to come out of this suffering. I just want to read that to you. It's a short section. Just listen to this. After a few days while we were all praying, on a sudden, in the middle of our prayer, there came to me a word, and I, he was named Denocrates. That was her brother. And I was amazed that na that name had never come into my mind until then, and I was grieved as I remembered his misfortune. And I felt myself immediately to be worthy and to be called on to ask on his behalf. And for him I began earnestly to make supplication and to cry with groaning to the Lord. Without delay on that very night, this was shown to me in a vision. I saw Denocrates going out from a gloomy place where also there were several others, and he was parched and very thirsty, with a filthy countenance and pallid color, and the wound on his face which he had when he died. This Denocrates had been my brother after the flesh, seven years of age, who died miserably with disease, his face being so eaten out with cancer that his death caused repugnance to all men. For him I had made my prayer, and between him and me there was a large interval, so that neither of us could approach to the other. And moreover, in the same place where Denocrates was, there was a pool full of water, having its brink higher than was the stature of the boy. And Denocrates raised himself up as if to drink, and I was grieved that, although the pool held water, still, on account of the height to its brink, he could not drink, and I was upset, and knew that my brother was in suffering. But I trusted that my prayer would bring help to his suffering, and I prayed for him every day until we passed over into the prison of the camp, for we were to fight in the camp show. Then was the birthday of Caesar, and I made my prayer for my brother day and night, groaning and weeping that he might be granted to me. And then it talks about later on. On the day which we remained in fetters, this was shown to me, I saw that that place which I had formerly observed to be gloom was now bright, and Denocrates, with a clean body, well-clad, was finding refreshment. And where there had been a wound, I saw a scar. And that pool, which I had before seen, I saw now with its margin lowered, even to the boy's navel. And one drew water from the pool incessantly, and upon its brink was a goblet filled with water. And Denocrates drew near and began to drink from it, and the goblet did not fail. And when he was satisfied, he went away from the water to play joyously, after the manner of children, and I awoke. Then I understood that he was translated from the place of punishment. So here you just see, I mean, early on, just a little bit of the idea of there being a place of punishment. 
uh, a seven-year-old boy who dies, and he's prayed for, and then he comes, comes out of the place. So again, it's not the full-blown doctrine of purgatory, but early on you see some of these unorthodox views coming in, and then later, you know, they became what they did. But just so you know, charts like that just simply are not helpful. And some things might have been believed in one place that weren't believed in another. It's not like they were just accepted by everybody and so forth. So just a few things to consider there. Now, we did look at the martyrdom of Perpetua and her companions, and that was during the reign of Severus, Septimus Severus, 193 to 211. After his death, there was relative peace for a time, except there was a few years, 235 to 238, where there was some persecution going on. But then during the reign, and let me just see if I click forward here. Okay. Again, that's the Colosseum where Perpetua and her companions were. The remains of it. During the reign of Decius, 249 to 251, there was now empire-wide persecution. And again, a lot of times it was just you know, different places throughout the empire. Now, again, it's empire-wide. And he believed that Christian monotheism was the reason for the decline of the Roman Empire. So he saw the need to persecute the Christians because of that. During his reign, all people had to receive the libelus, the libelus, which was a certificate that showed you had sacrificed to the emperor. And it demonstrated your faithfulness to the empire and your patriotism. And if you didn't get it, you were viewed as a traitor to Rome. So here you have full-on state versus church. And again, you needed to have the libelus in order to trade, in order to buy or sell. And so it's quite interesting because here you have, again, the, the beastly principle where, you know, if you don't have something, you can't buy or sell with it unless you sacrifice to uh, a pagan idol. So that was going on there at that time. So, again, very challenging because a Christian would be in a situation, I have to ask, what am I going to do? If I don't sacrifice, I'm going to have a hard time buying or selling. I'm going to have to improvise somehow to get what I need. So that was taking place at that time. Then you had the next emperor, Valerian, uh, 253 to 260. He continued the persecution. Church leaders were killed if they did not sacrifice to the emperor and Christian gatherings were illegal. And then we come to Diocletian. Now, as we're going through this brief survey of the different emperors and the things that they did, when you get to Diocletian, the persecution is the most severe through all the time in the Roman Empire. It's just absolutely horrific. The most fierce persecution of all under Diocletian. He divided the empire up into three areas, and he put three different men in charge of those areas. Maxinian was in the east, Constantius in the west, and Galerius in the central regions. And Galerius was the most avidly anti-Christian of them. In 303 AD, Galerius encouraged Diocletian to exterminate Christianity. So they had a goal, we're going to step-by-step step, wipe, wipe this out completely. All the church leaders were arrested unless they sacrificed to the emperor, and this was extended to all Christians in the next year. Christian worship was forbidden. This continued until 311 AD, and then it stopped because Galerius became sick. And he rescinded the persecution, and he asked the Christians to pray for his health. 
So it's, so it's interesting. <laughs> when somebody loses their health, a lot of times the, the situation changes. Um, there's a Roman do- uh, government document that was discovered in Egypt, and it shows items that were taken from a church in Egypt in the 300s. About 300 books were taken from the church building. It happened over to over 300 churches in Egypt. And so when you consider that, it's amazing that we have as many manuscripts as we do because in the persecution, you know, they sought to destroy all the scriptures and all uh, Christian um, written material. In 306 AD, the son of Constantius, who was in the West, Constantine comes to power in the West. And we're not going to get into all of Constantine's story now. We'll deal with him a little bit later. But in 312, he attacked his rival, Maxentius, in Rome, and he defeated him at the Melvian Bridge. And of course, again, we'll go through the story, but what happens is Constantine uh, has a conversion to Christianity. And so in 313 AD, he issues the Edict of Toleration and lands under his authority, and it would take another year until that would be empire-wide, so the persecution would stop. And that period of time is known as the Peace of the Church, where all of this persecution that has gone on Uh, Century by century, with all these different Roman emperors, comes to an end. And you have the first Roman emperor who is a professor of Christianity in Constantine. So that's some of the issues there concerning uh, persecution. Now, again, our goal is to go through the first few centuries of persecution, and then we want to go back to the second century and look at some of the church fathers. But I don't want to step away from this until we look at some of the responses to persecution that occurred. Because it's so often we, we learn about persecution at this time and we think about the great suffering that the Christians went through, being burnt at the stake, being fed to the lions. I mean, if you ever imagine yourself in that situation, you know, you're thrown to wild beasts, you know, how would you react to that? I know Richard Wormbrand, what he would do in, uh, in communist Romania, he would take his students to the zoo and he would set them there before lions and the beasts and he would say, would you be prepared to be thrown to them? Because if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. Of course, that was in communist Romania and he was you know, preparing them. But a lot of times I think we don't know or we're not aware concerning the great challenges that took place internally in the churches because of persecution. In a fallen world, you're going to have attacks from within and attacks from without. So when you think of attacks within the churches, you think of schisms, divisions, heresies, all kinds of false teachings. And you think of attacks from without, you know, you're thinking from the unbelieving world, different forms of persecution. But what's interesting at this time is attacks from without, that is from the unbelieving world, led to problems within the churches as well. At this time in church history, one of the biggest issues that brought about division in the church was how to respond to persecution. And that's interesting because that's something that here we probably never had to deal with, is if fierce persecution would take place, how are we as Christians to respond to that? And there were different views. Also, there was controversy concerning what do you do with those who give into persecution? And then later, after the persecution ends, they come back in repentance, wanting to be part of the church again. And believe it or not, that caused great schism 
So there are different views in concerning the responses that we are to have. Uh, I'm just going to read first from Matthew chapter 10 for a moment. In verse 23, if you'd want to turn there. The first view was the response of Christians to persecution was typically you were to hide or you were to flee. And Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23 was used for that. So if you remember there what Jesus said concerning response to persecution, he says this. Uh, Let me read first in uh, verses 21 and 22. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. That's been happening for almost 2,000 years. I mean, that happened in the Roman Empire. That happens in Islamic countries. I mean, that's the closest of family relations, of, of, of relationships that you'll have. You have to be willing to give those up to follow Christ if your family is not truly saved. And so... <laughs> those things uh, people had to, had to face. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And here's what he says in verse 23 now. And when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now we're going to talk about the whole thing there, but I just want you to see the principle. Jesus says if they persecute you in a, a certain city, it's principle, flee, flee to the next one. That's not just flee and hide, but that's flee and continue the work of Christ in a different place. If it comes to the point where they completely reject you, they don't want to hear the gospel, and they're going to kill you for it, go and continue the work somewhere else. Continue the work of preaching the gospel, discipleship, building up the church somewhere else. And so you have that principle. So many church leaders taught and many Christians believed that this was usually the best thing to do. If you're persecuted, flee somewhere else. Uh, It's interesting, Polycarp, uh, we talked about Polycarp, and some homeschoolers, they made a a, a video about Polycarp, uh, which is pretty neat. It's it's the historical account, and they add some things in there. One of the things they show on there is when persecution is happening, they show on there, we need to flee. We need to flee a Smyrna. We need to go to Ephesus. No, no, I'm staying. No, I'm going. No, I'm staying. And so there was this controversy that Christians had at this time. They're just accurately showing what, what do you do? And so many believed persecution was not something to be sought after. And if you're in the situation where you're faced with sacrifice to the emperor or not, you don't do it. You don't deny Christ. You have to be willing to suffer. You have to be willing to die. But you don't seek it out. And if there's persecution, you flee. One example is Cyprian. We haven't studied Cyprian yet, but uh, he's, uh, he was a bishop in the third century, bishop of Carthage. And what's interesting is when you get to his time, we talked about this before. Before, in the early times, you had the different local churches. All of them were governed over by a group of elders or bishops. And then later on, we saw this, that changed to each church was led by one bishop and under him a group of elders. It was a tra- trans. Uh, change, a transformation taking place. By the time you get to the third century, you'd have a bishop over a whole city. So Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage in the city there in the mid-third century. He governed the church for a time by letter because persecution happened and he fled. He was in hiding and he would explain to the people what to do and, and decisions to make by epistle. Later on, he returned to deal with pressing matters concerning 
persecution because you had those that were referred to as the lapsed, those who had denied Christ, those who had compromised and left the church, and now they were repenting and coming back. So what was to be done? So he comes back to deal with that, and eventually then he dies there as a martyr himself as well. But there's an example where he fled for a time, but because of the pressing matters, he came back, and then he died as a martyr. So <clears throat> even many who did seek after martyrdom, who actively sought for, for it, even said that the best thing to do is still flee. So that was one view, hiding or fleeing. But secondly, there were those who had the view that persecution and martyrdom is to be actively sought after. And they were viewed by many Christians as being overly zealous and as failing to heed Jesus' counsel in Matthew chapter 10. Whereas those who sought martyrdom viewed those who hid or fled as weaker brethren. And so you're going to have some controversy. I mean, can, can you imagine that in a church where you have some of your brethren who believe in hiding or fleeing and you're looking at them then as the weaker ones? It's going to cause problems. Uh, you're probably familiar with the catacombs. Uh, that was a temporary place for Christians at times to hide. And it contains 4 million graves and it stretches about 350 miles it reveals that many of the early Christians were poor and uneducated folk, but again, it was a place for them to, to the, the art in the, in the catacombs reveals that to us today, which we would expect, 1 Corinthians 1.18, you see that. But again, it was a place for the Christians to hide. So you had these different views, those who hid and those who sought after it. Now, consider this. Not only did you have those different views that could cause problems, but then you had different views on what to do concerning the lapsed those who had compromised during persecution and then later repent and they want to come back. Sometimes while persecution is still going on, sometimes while the persecution is, um, is, is finished. And so what, what do you do with them? We'll get to him in just a bit. You know that multitudes refused to deny Christ. They refused to sacrifice to the emperor. We saw that with Ignatius Polycarp Perpetua. But those who lapsed and later repented were categorized into three different groups. And let me give you those now. First, there was, number one, the sacrificate. Those were those who, while persecution was going on, they completely compromised. They made sacrifice to the emperor. That was the sacrificate. So what do you do with those who actually gave in and sacrificed to the emperor and now they repent, they come back, and they want to be a part of the church. Secondly, this is the hardest one always for me to pronounce, the Levi Laltite. <laughs> it's a hard word, but let me try to do it really slow. I've been practicing on so much. The Levi Latite. I'm just going to stop there from trying to pronounce it. Here's what they did. What's that? <laughs> a little, it's spelled L-E-V-A-L-A-T-I-T-E. And some are long and some are short vowels. But anyway, these are those who did not sacrifice to the emperor, but they did obtain the libelus. That's the, the document that shows that you sacrificed to the emperor, which indicated that they had sacrificed. This was the certificate stating they sacrificed to the emperor. It would be signed by a local magistrate. So they actually had the local magistrate sign it. And again, it was necessary for them to do business transactions, so they, they did that. Um, 
they would give them extra grain, extra money, or whatever, pay them off, and they would give them the Libelus. So many Christians saw it as, okay, but you still compromised. You got the certificate. Whereas they could say, look, we really didn't sacrifice. We're being wise. And this way we could still do business transactions. But said, no, you, you compromised and you lapsed is what others would say. And then third, you had the Trotators. Those who under, these were those who under later persecution turned books over to the authorities. So they didn't sacrifice. They didn't get the libelous. But when the authorities came to the house to get any Christian literature, they turned it over. Uh, some actually, what's interesting is they actually didn't turn over Christian literature. They turned over non-Christian literature, non-Christian books to the Roman authorities, knowing that the Roman soldiers were so ignorant, they couldn't tell the difference between uh, Christian material and non-Christian material. It, was, it would have been in Greek, and they couldn't typically read that. So because of that, they, but still, they were known as the Trotators because you still acted as if you gave over Christian material. So again, you have all these different ideas and, and, and some trying to come up with different things to escape the persecution. So churches struggled to know what to do with the lapsed who desired readmittance into the fellowship after the persecution had ended. So here's some of the things that happened. When someone would come back in repentance, oftentimes public penance was the common practice. Now, when I'm talking about penance, I'm not talking about what you know in later Roman Catholicism as oftentimes what their practices were of penance and forgiveness. This was like a public repentance and you were in a public confession and you were watched for, for a time to see was this repentance genuine. So public penance was a common practice. If a church leader lapsed, he would never again be able to hold the position that he once did. A believer who lapsed would never be allowed to hold any church office at all. Periods of penance were oftentimes years in length. Many of the lapsed remained in a separate class in the church, so a subculture developed. Some were admitted again with even little penance. So it depended on where you were. It depended on the church you were in. depended maybe on the bishop of the area, of the city, concerning how lenient they would be. Some were much more strict. Some were much more lenient. And so there was all these different views that happened. How is this handled and how is this handled? And, uh, I mean, again, even as you read through the history, I have different views that come up, and I, I mean, I think I, I disagree with that one. I just, you know, just think, for example, Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. And he was forgiven. And he was a church leader. And so... I think at times they're a bit too strict, but at the same time, I can understand the wisdom there of not just, yeah, I just come back in, and then there's the risk, okay, again, they lapse. So it is to be taken seriously, no doubt about it. But, you know, years of penance, sometimes I quite, especially when a subculture is developing, I'm thinking that's a bit dangerous. But nevertheless, that's the history, and that's what happened. Someone who was called a confessor was someone who suffered without denying Christ. They may have been imprisoned, beaten. They may have been put to work in the mines. Oftentimes, Christians were taken as prisoners, and they were put to work in the mines. Maybe even they lost a limb. Maybe even a limb was cut off. And uh, so some of those were given a special place of authority in the church. 
And I mean, just stop and think about this. I don't know. I've seen a video before. Uh, I can't remember his voice of the martyrs or open doors or something. I can't remember where there was uh, in Pakistan. There was a young man who was he became a Christian. He was teaching people uh, different uh, from different Christian literature, almost kind of like a, you know Bible study, I guess you could say. And Muslims took him one day and they cut off uh, one of his arms, and so it cut it off right here. So while they're doing the interview, they're just showing him here, and you think everything's normal, and then later on they show him well he's got his arm cut off. But he continued uh, just to keep doing what he's doing. So for us, that's kind of surprising. Wow, he, he got his arm cut off for teaching Bible study. Uh, but think about it at this time if you're in the church and you're sitting beside someone or a family member of someone who, had, who's, who lost a limb. Their arm is gone, let's say. And you're there and you're someone who still has their limbs because you denied Christ but you were brought back in the church. So you see the division that this could cause? You let them back in, and, and look, he suffered martyrdom. And so, so, you know, you had this, this controversy that would take place in these ways. It was usually those, though, who were persecuted and who didn't deny Christ. It was usually those who were quickest to give the opinion that those who had lapsed and then repented should be allowed back in the church. So it's interesting because you understand they faced it. They faced the suffering. It was usually those who faced the suffering who understood it was only by the grace of God that I was able to stand. And so they were quickest to say, you forgive and, and let them back in. So that's quite interesting. They were usually quick to say just with light penance and let them back. At times, even because they were so respected for enduring the persecution that they did, their authority would override the authority of the bishop because they had become so respected. Uh, again, but there were others who said, no, much penance is needed. Others made distinctions. They said someone who was a trotator who just handed over books wouldn't have to uh, do as much penance as someone who had actually sacrificed. Uh, some were accused of being unloving and unforgiving for not allowing the lapsed back into the church. Those who were allowed readmission were accused of weakness and impurity and deniers of the importance of the Christian confession. So, so look, your church is impure. You're letting all these laps back in. And so all that took place. Now, this led to another controversy known as the Novation Controversy or the Novationist Controversy. It was primarily limited to Rome. In 251 BC, a man by the name of Cornelius was elected bishop of Rome. So again, here you have it now where you have the bishop of a whole city. So again, this is developing even more. Later on, the bishop of Rome becomes pope. So anyway, so he's elected bishop of Rome, and the people of Rome at this time elected the bishop, and that continued until the year 1059. But Cornelius offered penance and readmission to the lapsed, so he was a bit more lenient. Whereas Novation, who was one of the leading clergymen in the city, rejected Cornelius' action and split from his authority insisting that no readmission into the church was possible. So you have one who was really lenient, one who wasn't lenient at all. And so because of that, there was this schism or schism that took place, the Novationist controversy. And so that was a problem. Now, there was some other issues that took place during this time. Remember, in the early days, just like you see in the New Testament, you simply have two ordinances in the church. You have baptism and you have the Lord's Supper. 
it's at this time where this is starting to expand a little bit. And, you know, you have the what's known as the different sacraments. And you don't have just baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have ordination and marriage and so forth that's, that's coming about. And also at this time, you have the priesthood is developing in the third century. So what you have here is, remember, you had bishops and you had presbyters, whereas before it was just one, bishop, presbyter, elder, pastor, all one. Then you had bishop and presbyters in the church. And then you had bishop of the city and then other presbyters or elders. The presbyters start to uh, be referred to as priests, and you have the priesthood developing. Well, here's what happens. Cyprian who again was Bishop of Carthage, is teaching during this controversy, and his teaching becomes controversial for a long time. He taught that the sacraments functioned in this way, ex opera operanti, and that means the one performing the sacrament must be right with God. This would be vital to the act and blessing of God, even within marriage, even with a marriage. So, I mean, think about how controversial this was then. Cyprian, and again, at this time, you have baptismal regeneration, which had developed. So Cyprian is a man who believes in baptismal regeneration. So let's say that he baptizes somebody, and the person who is baptized, or let me, let me put it this way, someone who has lapsed baptizes somebody, and the baptism isn't considered legitimate. And they believed in baptismal regeneration, so they would see the person as maybe not being regenerated. You, you get how, so you have some of this errant teaching that comes in, and then because of this controversy, it gets really, really difficult. If a priest lapsed, any sacrament that he performed was considered invalid because he was separated from the church due to his apostasy. So that becomes controversial. Stephen who as the bishop of Rome taught the opposite, ex opera operato, which was this, by the function of the act itself, not by the one performing it. This view taught that the sacrament functioned by its own power, not the moral or spiritual condition of the one performing it. So he taught no. If you baptize somebody, if you ordain somebody, even if that person was lapsed, it still is legitimate because it doesn't depend on the man, it's the function itself. That's important. Now, if somebody asks, well, what side would you take? Well, I would say I think a lot of it was really not really important to begin with because, I mean, when you don't believe in baptismal regeneration um, and you don't believe that there has to be a special blessing on a marriage to actually make the marriage legitimate, um, it's not really going to be a controversy. But you do have to think of even if you don't believe in baptismal regeneration and someone's baptized, uh, you know, and that pastor later on lapses, I mean, we would say, at least here, I think the other elders would agree that he's still legitimately baptized because it doesn't depend on the man. So ex opera operato, I'd say, would be more biblical, but because of some of the other errant teachings there, somebody, yes, Howard.
so if those men got together, you know, a group of, let's say there was a thousand people in the whole city and they had whatever, that, that's 10 elders total. And they all discuss this, I think then together, I think would have gotten you know, much more closer to the right reasoning, you know, scriptural understanding of passages instead of one man being upon himself to make decisions of important, you know, decisions about things. You know, that's why he's having it. That's why he set it up as an ambassador for his group of elders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you got that, and that would be a big help. And then sometimes, even still, like with the Novatius controversy, here you have a presbyter who disagrees with the bishop, and they separate out. So sometimes, even so, it was what Howard says is correct, and then sometimes you still had these disagreements. And so, yep. Yeah, I'm not saying you wouldn't have disagreements, right? But there would have been, I think, a lot fewer than, of course, this led, of course, eventually to, you know, I'm sure you'll get into that ultimately, but the way that it all started, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, so that goes on. Now, before we finish, we'll just quickly deal with uh, the Donatist controversy. We're going to look a little bit more at this later, but because it's linked to what we're talking about, we're just going to mention some things about it briefly. In 311 A.D., at the ordinance, at the ordination of Bishop, excuse me, I'm just stumbling today, Bishop Sicilian of Carthage. One of the men involved in the ordination was accused of being a trotator, so accused of being one who had handed scriptures over. So those who held to ex opera operanti would say that Sicilian was not properly set apart and his ordination was then seen as non-effective. So because of that, those people ordained a bishop in his place. So you had this disagreement that took place, this split. That bishop's successor was named Donatist. And the Donatist controversy, it's named after him because he was a lot more well-known. He was ordained in his place in 316. Donatist. So the Donatists, what they did is they split from the Catholics and they rejected the Catholics as being in communion with Christ. So again, this isn't yet full-blown Roman Catholicism, but you still have the Catholics, and now the Donatists split off and they become a separate church. So you have the Catholic Church and you have the Donatist Church. The Donatists viewed themselves as the separated ones or as the pure ones. In fact, their church buildings, to distinguish them from the Catholics, all their church buildings were painted white, which would symbolize they were the pure church and the Catholics were not. This was a big controversy in North Africa for a great while. And it was a big movement. In fact, just at a Donatist meeting, a gathering of bishops, there could be up to 700 bishops there. So it wasn't just a small movement. This was a, this was a big movement that took place. A huge part of African Christianity would be affected, and even it would have a big effect even into the Reformation itself. It was, I want you to think about this now, just to get some context here. It was an absolute scandal at this time in North Africa to have two denominations. Two denom- it was absolutely 
scandalous. Now, for us, it's hard to maybe think about how that experience would be because we grew up in a context where you have a whole lot of denominations, right? Just even in this town. But that wasn't the experience of a huge majority of Christians throughout church history. So, for example, to go into a city and to have a Catholic church and a Donatist church was absolutely scandalous, the fact that the church would be split that way. I mean, even in the time of the Reformation, it's often asked, how could reformers, okay, Catholics persecuted Anabaptists, right? And they persecuted reformers. How could reformers also persecute Anabaptists? Keith and I were having this discussion the other night. And you have to understand, though, the way of thinking. In the time of the Reformation, when a city would convert, like say if they turned from Rome to the Protestant reformers, the whole city would become Protestant. You didn't have a Catholic church over here and a Protestant church over here. You see, because the people couldn't grasp, you can have two denominations in a city, or I don't think Roman Catholicism really is a denomination. I think it's a different religion. But nevertheless, two different churches in the same city. I mean, the people just didn't think that way. So here to have a Donatist church and a Catholic church in the city was absolutely uh, scandalous. And so it was a really big issue. So you had the Donatist. Now, the Donatist church continued strong. Eventually, though, it would fizzle out in about 300 years because the Muslims would come through and basically persecute them and destroy them. And so... The Catholics continued. The Donatists eventually were wiped out in North Africa. Well, the main thing was because they say that all our bishops are legitimately ordained because we don't have any of the lapsed involved in ordaining bishops, whereas the Catholics... I'll tolerate someone who had lapsed as a church leader ordaining people. So, yeah, like that. And so, here's what you have then going on in history. Remember, you have when you get to the second century, you have the Catholic Church, really, who was the, they were the genuine Christians, distinct from the Gnostics and the, the Ebionites, who were some of the, and we haven't talked about the Ebionites, but they were some of the Jews who wanted to still profess to be Christians, but they would deny the deity of Christ and so forth. So you have these different cultic groups, these different Gnostic groups, and the Catholics remain separated from them as, 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 a, you know, as a faithful biblical church. Well, now you have with the Donatist controversy, the Catholics still saying they are the genuine church, the Donatists breaking off and saying, no, not no more. Now we are the true uh, legitimate Christians. So you have that going on there in the fourth century. Um, there are those, and I'll just speak on this just for a moment and then we'll be done. Who, there are those today who think that the reformers and the Donatists would have been on the same page. That's maybe not exactly the case. Uh, but it is true that in the Reformation that people like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin and so forth were just seen as absolute radicals. Because, again, in our day, it's, I mean, someone breaks off, they start another denomination, they start another church. It's not seen as so radical. In those days, it was. To actually do 
what the reformers were doing. And some questioned, when does this end? I mean, are you going to want to change everything? And some of the Anabaptists went that route. They just questioned, they wanted to change, let's rethink everything. And then some of them, let's rethink the Trinity. And they became Trinity deniers. So there is a line on how far you go. And that's why the Bible just simply has to be our guide with that. And when you study church history, and we'll deal with this, <clears throat> when you go through the Middle Ages, you have Roman Catholicism that continues on. And we'll look at some of the separated groups, the groups who were separated from the church at Rome at that time. You have like the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Paulicians, and so forth. So we'll look at that. A lot of people who teach church history put the Donatists in that group. They would say the Donatists were one of those early churches that broke off from the Catholics. But a little bit of a different situation there. Because, I mean, it's not like the Donatists, you know, the Donatists weren't Baptists. You know, the Donatists still maintained many of the same beliefs of the Catholics at that time. Um, and at, at the same time, it was for, you know, maybe some different reasons why they broke off. But they were, they were a separatist group. And then we'll look at a little bit later on when we come to Augustine. Augustine had different controversies in his life that he dealt with, theological controversies. A lot of times we think of him as battling against Pelagius and the Pelagian heresy. But one of his, the other big controversy that he had was with the Donatists. And Augustine was a big opponent against the Donatists. And uh, so we'll look at some of that. And that's big because that affects the rest of church history all the way to the Reformation. Because you have the Reformers who are quoting Augustine so often against the Roman Catholics because they agree with Augustine's view on salvation and on grace. But then you have the Roman Catholics who are quoting Augustine because they hold to Augustine's view of the church. And Augustine's view of the church developed in the Donatist controversy. And so history has rippling effects through the centuries in some of these things. So we'll just stop there. Any last questions or comments before we're... Most definitely. Like, you know, birth of the Lord Church, right? 
other words, be that a bad dream has an obvious, obvious repentance. Right? But it is interesting to see these things come down. And one thing that comes to my mind is when Peter Green got in, when you mentioned the, like the first development of purgatory, right? I mean, interesting thing comes in the scriptures. Yeah. This morning, what how important scripture is, right? But that how many of these people and even bishops and that grew up with something I think a lot of them didn't have, especially in this time. Did, did they have the whole Bible? How many of them had it? Right. And we don't realize that too until we get into that. We don't you know, there is some ways in that that they had to deal with, you know, to deal with that too, but they have that because we know from history there'd be times even in the world they were they you got people who came to Christ and the uh, church, they don't have a whole Bible, you know. And we laugh at that. We have they have the whole Bible compared to scripture, but scripture a lot of times I think there were times they they did. Yeah. Sure, definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. And that's when you study church history, you know a lot of times you have to have some, when you see some in error, you know, I'm a little bit slower to judge because us as believers, having each having a copy of the Bible in our own language, you know, wasn't the case through most of church history. And so I think you had a lot of godly believers who were really saved and who were converted, but were just in a lot of, wrong teaching because they they didn't have the scriptures to study every day and so forth so and they were dependent on the leaders of their church so something to consider okay if there's nothing else uh, just just to mention too i was going to mention at the beginning these this section on persecution i'm really indebted to james white in his uh his teaching on it in his series on sermon audio so he's got more information on there if you're interested you can go go watch it but a lot of this material came from that so okay let us pray howard would you